Welcome to the Abridged Presidential Histories with Kenny Ryan, episode 33A, an interview on how the Truman Committee helped win World War II with Steve Drummond. I'm excited to welcome Steve Drummond to the show today. Steve is a senior editor and executive producer at NPR, my favorite source for staying informed on the news. And uh, more pertinent to today's discussion, he's the author of the new book, The Watchdog, How the Truman Committee Battled Corruption and Helped Win World War II. Steve, thank you for your time. Hey, Kenny, thanks a lot. I'm happy to be here and happy any time to geek out on Truman. (laughs) Excellent. We're in the right place. (laughs) So let's start with what inspired your interest in, of all things, the Truman Committee. Yep. So longtime history nerd. Let's just get that out in front. But some years ago, uh, in my job at NPR, but I've also done freelance writing over the years, and somehow I got hooked up with a, uh, a magazine in Detroit 10 or 15 years ago that asked me to write it. It's my hometown to write a story about Detroit during World War II, the contributions Hmm. of Detroit during the war, which are huge, by the way. It's a great story of not just Detroit, but industry in general. But, you know, thousands of tanks and airplanes and all the stuff that needed to be built to win the war. And in researching this story, and and a little part of it right near my hometown is a giant bomber plant outside um, Detroit that Henry Ford built to build bombers. And it was supposed to be this kind of – the assembly line, Kenny, was a mile long. And eventually, this thing could crank out a four-engine bomber every 63 minutes. And you understand when you hear that number how the U.S. won the war. Germany and Japan, I'm sorry, could not compete with with that. Having said that, early on, the, the factory was a mess. They couldn't find enough workers. They couldn't get the production line going. Turned out Henry Ford did not know as much about making airplanes as cars and all this stuff. And in researching this magazine piece, I ran across these references that something called the Truman Committee had come to Ypsilanti, Michigan, where this factory was, to investigate. That led me down an internet rabbit hole, and I started reading some of the oral history accounts that some of these young staffers who worked on this committee were like, oh, I'm right out of law school, and I got they got hired to work in this committee in Washington. Next thing you know, they're flying around the country, going undercover in factories, uncovering corruption or waste or everything. And the journal, you'll understand this, the journalist is me. I'm reading this. I'm like, you know, <laughs> I, th- I think there's a story here. Yeah. And and most biographies of Truman kind of skip right over this part. So the, the Truman Committee, uh, yep. this is a committee that's established by Harry Truman in March 1941. Who was Harry yep. Truman in March of 1941? You know, what kind of reputation did he have? What do people think of him? That's a great question. And the answer, most most Americans could not have answered that question. In other words, <laughs> in, in March of 1941, Truman, Harry Truman was one of the least known politicians in Washington. He had just gotten reelected to a second term in the Senate, but pretty much he was an absolute nobody in Washington. He had sat there in the Senate you couldn't say, oh, which bill is he done? Even within <laughs> Missouri, most people in Missouri could name the, the senior senator, a guy named Bennett Clark, who nobody knows about today. But nobody could even uh, recognize Truman's name. So he, w- he was pretty much a non-entity. And that's, you know, and then in three and a half years, and that's my story, he takes this little tiny appropriation from Congress and turns it into the most powerful congressional investigation the country had ever seen and then you know ends up being vice president so let's dive into the origin of this why did truman create this committee and what was its mission yep so right after his re-election uh win a narrow win in which the president of the united states supported his opponent uh roosevelt barely knew truman at this time 
Mm-hmm. Truman was kind of relaxing after winning, and he was getting letters from a lot of his constituents in Missouri about an army camp that was be, being constructed in, in the Ozarks called Fort Leonard Wood. So right now, I should back up a little bit and say, this is 1940. A war has been raging around the world for several years, in some places, two years in Europe. Franklin Roosevelt and a lot of people knew the United States was going to have to get in this war. But in, at that time, the United States Army ranked 17th in size in the world behind Romania. So there was a lot of work to be done. There was a huge rate saying, listen, we're going to be in this war. And once again, it's pretty much the United story of the United States. We're going to be in a war that we're not ready for. So mm-hmm. there's this massive defense buildup going on, including army camps. So people are writing into Truman saying, you know, something's going on at this location here. Uh, you know, nobody's doing any work and, you know, the stuff's just sitting out in the open and nobody's, you know, people are soaking the government for money. You should check this out. One of the great things about Truman is he doesn't send a staffer or create a big congressional foo and everything. Truman gets in his car in Washington, D.C., and he drives out to Missouri and, and shows up at this place. And here he is, no, oh, hey, I'm a big shot senator, a guy in a suit wandering around asking questions. And he, what he sees... Fantastic. Yeah, it's, it's awesome. Truman is so much fun. And what he sees really makes him mad. He sees lumber sitting out, ruining, you know, rotting in the snow. He sees guys sitting around playing cards, drawing a paycheck. He sees contractors soaking the government for three or four times as much money as they should be making. And then from there, Truman kept going. He ventured a bunch of other sites in other states, and he saw the same thing. He came back from, from that trip in February of 1941, angry as can be. And he started talking to some friends and people saying, hey, you know, we should, we should investigate this. Um, he stood up on the Senate floor on February 10th and he made a speech, not a great speech. And um, <laughs> he, he, you know, never was a great public speaker. But eventually the Senate gave him um, his committee permission to start this investigative committee. And they gave him a little tiny amount of money to do it. And, and let me explain that if I could. So nobody was super wild about the idea, especially Franklin Roosevelt, of a senator from his own party poking his nose into how the government was managing or mismanaging the defense program. That was, mm-hmm. nobody was wild about this, but it soon became clear if the Democrats didn't do it, then the Republicans would very much like to do it. And so <laughs> yeah, yeah. giving Truman this committee was kind of a, a steam valve, a way to say, hey, listen, we're, mm-hmm. we're keeping an eye on ourselves. Yeah. So, so Truman, like you and I, was a history nerd. Yeah. And if he had looked back in the United States history, would he have seen a history of, of this kind of thing with previous wars? Did the United States have a history of waste and efficiency, war oh. profiteering, corruption with its prior wars? Right. Two great examples. One, Truman, as you know, was a combat veteran of World War I himself. Right? And there mm-hmm. were huge concerns about mismanagement and corruption. Weirdly, all these investigations happened after the war. There were something like 117 investigations of World War One after it ended in 1918. Wow. One of them, believe it or not, ran into the 1930s. And Truman wow. had seen all this and saying, what is the point of that? And so his idea was, why don't we investigate itself while it's actually happening? We can save the taxpayers dollars. And we can fix problems while we're while it's going on rather than wait till the you know, wait till after the war when it's all a a moot point. The other thing was Truman, uh, Truman had read his history, knew a lot about the Civil War, and he knew that there was a committee during the Civil War called the Committee on the Conduct of War or something. It was run by 
Abe Lincoln's own party, and they drove Lincoln crazy. They were always <laughs> yes. criticizing his conduct of the war, his strategy. It just was a thorn in his side. And Truman had, Truman had read all of the uh, journals and volumes of this committee's records, and he used that to make his committee. He said to Roosevelt and everyone else, we're not going to criticize military strategy. We're not going to tell the generals how to fight and win this war. We're not going to tell you that you should attack Japan instead of Germany or any of this stuff. Truman said, we're going to look at the defense buildup. We're going to look at these contracts. We're going to make sure that our soldiers and sailors and airmen are getting the best equipment we need. And he kept his word. He stuck to that narrow definition there. He defined his scope and he stuck to it. Now, go figure. What did, <laughs> what did it take for Truman to create the committee? You know, can a senator just walk up to the yep. front of the Senate and, and say, I declare a committee? Or, yep. you know, what legwork do you have to do to make that happen? He made a, he, he wrote up a proposal. He wrote a, a thing. He made a long speech. I propose that we do this. And he outlined the scope of it. I think it should have five senators or whatever. But then, yeah, it was up to the senator to grant his proposal, notably the appropriation. But also, once, and they did, they, he asked for $25,000. They gave him only 15000 bucks, which <laughs> is basically tossing him a bone. And Truman yeah. said that was barely enough to hire a lawyer and a couple secretaries. Um, right. But the other thing was, uh, yes, it would have uh, five senators. And Truman said, you know, three Democrats, including himself, plus two Republicans. Eventually, they changed that to seven, five Democrats, two Republicans. But mm. Truman spent a lot of time negotiating with Vice President Henry Wallace and Jimmy mm. Burns, who was the Senate Majority Leader, which senators would be on there. They wanted a couple of New Deal Roosevelt fans who would keep an eye on Truman, make sure he wasn't getting out of line. <laughs> it ended up being... And then Truman kind of had negotiate, but he ended up with a pretty decent list of what I keep calling B-list senators. They weren't the mm. rock stars of the Senate, but they were solid guys, friends of Truman's from his first term, people, even the Republicans he knew he could work with and who would take the work seriously. So that was kind of one of the key steps. And then the main thing he had to do was hire a staff. Normally, and I've said in the book, normally what you did was you hire, you needed, he needed a chief counsel, somebody to run the committee. Mm -hmm. Normally this went to like a political hack or somebody who just lost their election and needed a job, or <laughs> sure. you would hire some kind of fancy private lawyer who would add a big name, but who had many other jobs and would kind of mail it in. That was a generally, and, and it's why, Kenny, even in our time, 90% of these committees fizzle out after a while. They start off with a lot of headlines and then they go away. Truman did it differently. He called up the Attorney General of the United States, Robert Jackson, and he said, give me your best prosecutor. Who's the best guy? And Jackson thought about it and he thought about a really tough young prosecutor in his New York office who was a special assistant to the Attorney General, a guy named Hugh Fulton. And he called up Fulton and said, come down and meet with this senator. And... Um, and Truman met with them. They didn't quite get along great at the start, but they, but Truman ended up hiring Fulton, and it ended up being the you know one of the best decisions either men ever made, and that was a key to the whole success of the committee. So he he gets the buy-in. He works with the other senators to get the approval, the budget, some some members on his committee. He then goes out recruiting. He starts to build a team, and they, I imagine they get to work. And as they get to work, I imagine there's probably a lot of resistance to a committee like this. You, you mentioned uh, certainly on the Democratic side there have been yep. some reluctance. But, you know, I'm a former journalist. You're currently a journalist. I'm sure we both have experience yep. with powerful people not liking it when someone snoops around. What kind of pushback did Truman receive? A, a lot. And if you can imagine, yeah, Franklin Roosevelt didn't like this committee 
a lot. You know who else didn't like it? The military. Like mm. one, and there were a couple things. One, again, nobody wants, nobody likes to see the congressional thing poking around in their business. We see it today in our time. Uh, the military didn't like it. Big corporation defense contractors didn't like it. And time and time again throughout the war, especially with the Pentagon, you know, what would become the Pentagon, um, Truman would get the runaround. They'd take his request and shove him in a drawer. They would blow him off. Mm. And most of the time, the funny thing about the committee, and I can talk about some of the specific investigation, most of the time with the committee, if Truman called over to George Marshall, the chief of staff of the Army, and said, hey, you got a problem in this factory, if the Army fixed it, fine with Truman. No harm, no foul. Let's keep it quiet. He didn't want to embarrass the military. He didn't want to embarrass Franklin Roosevelt. But when the military stonewalled him, when they didn't give him what he wanted, Truman had a temper. And that was when the subpoenas came out, public hearings mm -hmm. came out. Some admiral or general would then find themselves sitting at a table in front of Truman with reporters and microphones there answering some very tough questions. I imagine that changed uh, how people responded to him in time. Oh, um, big time. In the face of this resistance that he was getting, especially at the start, especially yep. at the beginning, how did he prove the committee's yep. worth? Yep. So a couple of things. Tr Truman was a smart politician despite his kind of non-entity status. He had watched and learned. He knew how things work. He started with some low-hanging fruit. Um, these army camps, they intentionally chose one. It, he was still getting these letters from people saying, these army camps, you got to check this out. And then two, it was an easy target. And Truman said, you know what, let's start there. And then they had some serious stuff. They were eventually going to work up to a serious examination of Roosevelt's conduct of the whole war administration. But they kind of wisely tabled that one for a little later. So they, <laughs> yeah. they started investigating these army camps. They committee and the staffer, they started writing. They start conducting hearings. They travel around the country. They go to Fort Leonard Wood and they see some of this stuff in place. And so a few months into the committee, Truman releases the first big report on army camps. And basically, oh my gosh, it was a bombshell because it said in there that after World War I, their plans had been drawn up for building army camps. Nobody could find them, if you can actually believe wow. this. The generals at the time felt like there probably would never be another big war, so we wouldn't really need to do all this over <laughs> again. I mean, it's just silly stuff. And then yeah. they found, they found, for example that these army camps are being built, but nobody had thought, oh, maybe we should need some um, concrete uh, parking lots or there's no place for gasoline, no place to put the tank. In other words, the committee's report, the soundbite that got in every paper the next day was Truman said, the army was building camps along civil war lines as if they were built Ooh. for horses or, or whatever. Mm -hmm. There was no provisions for mechanized war or training for mechanized war at a time when Hitler's tanks were rolling all across Germany. And they found time and time again, waste, abuse, fraud. One army camp in Florida, a contractor had rented Ford pickup trucks to the army for $600 to rent them. The committee found they could have bought them from Ford Motor Company for $500. Like all kinds of crazy <laughs> stuff was going on. Materials left over, um, some of the army camp, one of the army camps was located near the worst malaria site in the whole country. Like, time, like there was no planning, no engineering. The Truman Committee report came out and it basically said the government has wasted $100 million, which was a lot of money then, $100 million on army camps. Headlines around the country, people starting to wake up and say, wow, this thing is a big deal. 
Up until this time, it had been called the Senate Special Defense Committee Subcommittee to Investigate the Defense Program. Pretty much after that, everybody just called it the Truman Committee. With that report and a couple of others, Truman was off to the races. When this report lands, it, you say Truman's off to the races. What was the response to this? You know, like, yeah. was the public, like, all, was he getting letters of support? Did this change the way the Senate responded to him? Did they give him more budget? You know, how, how did it affect uh, the way he was able to proceed? All of the above. Like, Truman, with this and the first couple of reports, his status, all of a sudden, he you can see it in his letters home to his wife, Bess. <laughs> she was often in Missouri. And Truman would be like, hey, my stature is growing here on the Capitol Hill. Hey, I'm, you know, the, the president noticed me, you know, like things like that right. it was a big it was a big deal and yes this was right you know in the gut punch to americans who were uh you know struggling after 10 years of depression uh mm-hmm. un- high unemployment to see that their their money was being wasted you know their hard-earned dollars are being wasted by the government people were not happy about this and then at the same time truman had gone on the radio a couple times and he said hey we're starting this new committee we need your help if you see something going on wrong down at the factory, if you see something wrong at the shipyard, write in to Harry Truman, Washington, D.C. And darned if they didn't. Uh, throughout the war, thousands of letters from everyday Americans saying, hey, Senator Truman, you should check this out or take a look at this. And some of the committee's biggest investigations came from those letters. And, and that tees up my next question perfectly, which is how did the committee perform its investigations? Were they dependent on whistleblowers or letters like these? Did they have investigators on staff? You mentioned they had at least one ace at the start. You know, how'd they operate? Yep. So slowly in this time, Truman and Hugh Fulton, as chief counsel, were building a staff. They hired, eventually it would grow to about 15 investigators, most of them lawyers, and about 15, you know, secretaries or stenographers. Uh, I talk about some of the role that women played in the committee. But they, they started building up the staff and they would, you know, Hugh Fulton began building up principals. He and Truman would meet every morning. They were both early risers. Truman had been a farmer as you know, and Fulton was a a workaholic. So they would meet at 7 a.m. in Truman's office before anybody got in. They'd look at the mail. They'd look at all the requests for investigations, and they'd start assigning work. And and the investigators would arrive for work an hour or two later, and they'd have on their desk, check this out, go this. And then off they would go. Um, Meanwhile, they were scheduling uh, trips around the country. Early on, they went out to Los Angeles to visit airplane factories and shipyards up and down the coast. They would hold hearings in these places. They would summon the factory managers or the union leaders or the contractors and ask them tough questions about how it was going. So all of this is a lot of giant information gathering thing that would eventually feed into these reports they were writing. So the committee was created in March 1941. Later that year, December, Japan attacked Pearl Harbor and pulled the United States into World War II. How did official entry into the war impact the Truman Committee? Yep, it's a, it's. A, I'll take a little aside to say it's a great story. Truman was suffering from stress and really wound down. He had taken a weekend off, and that weekend he had checked into a little hotel in kind of the middle of of Missouri to get away from it all. He was reading the newspapers. And all of a sudden, he got a phone call from the guy who had driven him there. And he's like, hey, the Japanese have bombed Hawaii. You need to get back to Washington. Truman, it's quite an adventure of how he found a guy to fly him to St. Louis, where somebody got bumped off a plane to get him back to Pittsburgh, so that Truman was actually in the Senate the next day for Franklin Roosevelt's famous Day of Infamy speech. So, you know, Truman had to scramble to get her. But right away, the same thing. The military was quick to say, 
hey, we can't have all these investigative committees now. We got a mm. war on. We need to go and win the war, and we don't have time mm -hmm. to be dealing with all this congressional stuff. Truman mm -hmm. saw this coming and made the opposite argument. Hey, now more than ever, we need to make we need to be keeping an eye on what's going on. We need to be doing these investigations. We may we need to make sure that the material that the soldiers and sailors are getting is the best. Roosevelt eventually agreed with him. The secretary of the assistant secretary of defense wrote a letter to Roosevelt saying we should kill this committee. Roosevelt sided with Truman, let them continue their work. Truman made it very clear that he would not be con com um, criticizing military strategy or poking his nose in the military's business beyond this his narrow focus, but he did and the committee kept going and even grew by two senators soon after. Can you give me an example of some of the biggest things this committee discovered? I remember there being one about a ship made with yeah. bad steel or, or other stories. Yeah. What, what are some of the biggest ones that come to mind? Yeah, I'll take one and we can do another one if you want. But yeah, the ship yeah. investigation. So one of these whistleblowers was a supervisory inspector at a steel plant by, owned by U.S. Steel outside Pittsburgh. And he, in, in, in early 1941, had been writing in these letters to Truman, hey, something funny is going on here. Um, where they, they make big slabs of steel. And, you know, a key factor in those things was, was the steel the right chemical composition? And was it strong enough? Would it, if it was put in a ship or a, 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 an airplane or somewhere, you know, if it was used for military purposes, would it hold up under pressure or whatever? And this guy was writing in saying, you know, they're cutting corners here, basically. The, the race to get the steel out, the race to make profits, they're, they're fudging the inspections. The problem was, I've read these letters, I've seen them in the National Archives, a guy named George Dye had written them. They're so technical and so hard to understand that the, these staffers reading them in Washington were like, this guy's, they put them in what they call the crackpot file. They were like, this guy's oh kind gosh. of a, I don't get what yeah. this guy's saying. And they basically, they blew him off. They blew him off. But as you mentioned, in January of 1943, a brand new tanker ship, the SS Schenectady, sitting at its mooring had never been out to sea yet. It was sitting at its mooring quietly on the night of January 16th. A giant sound breaks out, and the firefighters, law enforcement officer, everybody races to the scene, and that ship had, had broken in two. It looked like a giant just picked it up and snapped it in two. And immediately the investigation began. You know, what the heck happened here? At first they thought it was sabotage. Turned out it wasn't. Uh, you know, did something else happen? Was it the design? But one of the early questions was was there something wrong with the steel and the truman committee was here holding a hearing in march of that year and the owner of the shipyard henry kaiser we've almost forgotten about henry kaiser he was a famous guy in his time the only thing we know him for today is his health plan kaiser permanente but um, it's just i live in seattle i'm like kaiser yep. sounds familiar yeah yep. <laughs> but at the time he was building ships and tanker ships and, and merchant ships up and down the west coast He's testifying before the committee and they start to ask him, hey, what the heck happened to that ship of yours just broke up? Is something wrong with it? And Kaiser kind of reluctantly said, well, what I'm seeing, the reports from my experts say it was got bad steel, bad steel from the Carnegie, Illinois Steel Company in Pittsburgh. Well, all the young staffers on Truman Committee was like, uh oh, because they knew full well that they had a whole stack of letters from a guy at that very factory saying, hey, you know, we're shipping yeah. bad steel out of this place. Yeah. Um, and so that led to several of the staffers going up to the plant. They kind of went undercover saying, hey, can we have a tour? They subpoenaed the book, the inspection books and the records. They found out they had been 
widespread faking as much as 5% of the steel coming out of this factory was coming out based on falsified or incorrect inspections of the strength of the steel and shipping it to the who knows where a battleship the these tanker ships who knows where that steel was going so this once again put truman on the front pages of every newspaper in the country fake steel being shipped you know and then once again people started writing into truman hey I've got a son overseas. He's fighting in the combat forces, and you're telling me the steel company is shipping, you know, is endangering his life by sending out this bad steel? Hey, great work, Senator Truman. Keep up the good work. You know, how, how, how dare they do this? It really, really made people mad in the country, and it kind of continued this elevation of Truman of being kind of suddenly a national, powerful national figure. Well, wasn't there even something like when they got the books, it would have like a batch of steel yeah. and have the letter F next yeah. to it? Yeah. And the, the company, tell me more about that. Tell yeah. me about the letter F. It's a hilarious <laughs> story. So they finally get in. This guy, George Dye, had written a map. He knew right where the inspections books were. And the yeah. inspectors, who the Truman Committee staff, knew right where they were going. So they get in and they start asking these guys a question. Hey, do you inspect all this steel? That must be hard to do. Oh, yeah, yeah, we inspect it. Well, can we look at the inspection records? Well, that's kind of complicated. You were, it's very tough. You, would, you really wouldn't understand. And it'll take us all afternoon to get these records together. Well, they were standing right there knowing that the actual inspection book that they wanted to see was 10 feet away. They mm -hmm. knew this, and they knew they were being lied to. So they start saying, well, okay, you can do this. Or they took out a bunch of blank subpoenas signed by Truman and say, or we can Truman, everybody can come down to Washington and testify before the committee. So it's this big back and forth, and finally they end up giving these inspection books. And weirdly, when they didn't know the actual inspection strength of test results of the steel, they would just literally make it up. Or they would call on the phone and say, hey, give me some numbers. And they would write it in there. And then even weirdly, they would write in pencil an F right next to the entry, which um, tr so Truman gets the guy, uh, uh, the committee staffers gets the guy there. What do these Fs mean? They knew exactly what the F mean, but the guy is like, uh, F means phone? Um, <laughs> and literally, they're like, come on. We know F doesn't start. Uh, phone doesn't start with an F. And finally, they get the guy. Yes, you know, these are, they finally find the woman who was in charge of the steel book. They mm -hmm. take her into an office without any company official there. And they come on, mm -hmm. tell us the truth here. And she's like, yes, F means fake. Uh, and so... Boom. There's the bombshell. Truman calls the head of U.S. Steel, the head of its subsidiary, Carnegie, Illinois. He's like, I want you in Washington. Here's your subpoena Tuesday morning, and you're going to answer some tough questions. So once again, when the Truman, when, when the company or whoever fixed the problem quietly, Truman didn't care. But when he got stonewalled, when his people got stonewalled, okay, we'll do it the hard way. And that's what happened here. Front page news all across the country. That, that is such a crazy story. <laughs> One other thing I was curious about is that is something that really jumped out to me from this period was the dollar a year men oh, that yeah. the government was hiring. Yep. Can you tell me a bit about who were these men and right. and why did they draw the the committee scrutiny or, or yep. did they? So yeah, this was a weird thing when when it was clear that the United States was go to going to war. It was clear that the government was going to have to convert the entire U.S. economy to military production in a way that, you know, even today, like 
the 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 government was taking over the question who's going to get steel who's going to get rubber does a gun does a gun factory in new york state get the steel or does a shipyard in virginia that's making battleships get the steel or should the auto industry get the steel like a, an incredible amount of control over the u.s economy well who better knew how the economy worked who better knew how to make 500 tanks or you know than the people who were actually in the industry so many of them out of the most patriotic points of view volunteer they say you know what the government can't you know the head of sears roebuck made seventy-five thousand right. bucks a year at that time a lot of money the government couldn't pay them that so many of them left their jobs they went on leaves of absence to come to work for the government not for free but they would say oh just pay me a dollar a year or whatever so they became known as the dollar of year men there were hundreds of them flooding into washington going to work in the government to try and help sort this stuff out and again in a, in a certain way a very cool patriotic yeah. thing to do but in harry truman's eye there was another thing going on here so here were people who yesterday had worked for a big giant corporation now working for the government creating contracts for the very company that they were on leave from and so to harry truman a small businessman who was kind of suspicious from a lot of this stuff this looked kind of fishy and so from the get-go he was very opposed to the dollar a year men eventually he was he was led to believe that yes they did need these people in the government and many of them you know did a great accomplishments in helping to win the war but truman was there to keep an eye on them the whole time awesome what was did anything untoward ever happen with them did, was there ever any evidence of somebody several giving of bad them. contracts you, you, yeah yeah there were several of them who had to leave the service or uh there were super criticism but probably no more or less than you know any other i don't know look at the pentagon scandals we have today eight hundred dollar <laughs> toilet seats or sixty dollar wrenches or whatever you know there was inevitably a lot of that going on but but i think even truman would have com uh, agreed by the end mostly the dollar of your men had um had served the country well but um but Truman, you know, put some rules on it saying, OK, they won't do deals with their former companies. You know, they'll disclose mm -hmm. any mm -hmm. conflicts of interest or whatever. So Truman was kind of trying to tighten down the hammer on that. Is there any measurable way to quantify the impact that the Truman Committee had on the United States war effort in World War II? That is a great question. And uh, it's one I've thought about a lot. And so have a lot of other people since Truman. So I would just say a couple things. Clearly. The Truman Committee did save the country billions of dollars, no question. And billions then is, you know, think about that in today's terms. It was a lot of money um, and certainly saved lives on the battlefield in a couple of concrete ways. The bigger picture is, though, how are you going to count all that up and say, how do you count money that didn't get spent or didn't get wasted? It's a it's a big challenge. Having said that, some of these contracts one of the things the Truman Committee said was, okay, we cut these contracts into big deal. We're going to build 500 fighter planes for, our, you know, nobody, part of the problem was so many of these items, nobody had ever mass produced them before. So there was no way to mm. estimate how much it was going to cost. Oh, you're going to build 3,000 tanks in a year in a, fa in a brand new factory in Detroit. Sure. Well, nobody had ever done that before. So nobody knew. So they would yeah. estimate the cost. They would add on some money for profits for the company and they would make a contract. Well, Truman and others had the idea, you know what, let's go renegotiate those contracts. Turned out Chrysler was oh. making 
two or three times the profits they had estimated because, you know, they saved money or whatever. So Truman would go back and say, all right, let's renegotiate that contract. Let's pull that money back into the government. Many times this happened. So certainly there were billions of dollars of savings there. The army camp report, you know, the fact that they got a lot better at building army camps and a whole <laughs> bunch of other things saved billions of dollars. Truman liked to say his committee had saved billions, $15 billion was the number later in life that Truman used. It's probably as good or as bad as any other number, but no one, <laughs> yeah. no one really knows. And then, as for lives on the battlefield, yes, certainly there were savings. Um, uh, can, sh I, I should probably talk about the the landing craft, the Higgins boats, a little bit. Tell me about which, the yeah, Higgins yeah. boats. Yeah. So yeah, let, so here's an example of the Truman Committee saving lives. We've all seen Saving Private Ryan or many many movies. The uh, soldiers or Marines going ashore at D-Day or on mm -hmm. some island in the Pacific, and they had these small boats or landing craft. Well, before World War II, those, those vessels didn't exist. There was no need. If you wanted to put some people ashore, you just sailed into the port and they climbed down onto the dock, you know? <laughs> well, yeah, yeah. in wartime, you couldn't do that because you would get bombed or shot or whatever. So this whole question, how are we going to take thousands of men, take them close to a shore, get them off of the ships and onto the beach while they're being shot at. How are we going to do that? And this question of landing craft came up. And uh, uh, several countries, people all over the world were working on this question. What is, the, what is the way we're going to do that? The Navy had come up with a design for a landing craft uh, that they favored, and they had ordered hundreds of them at the cost of millions of dollars. Well, it turned out the landing craft weren't very good. Uh, they, they were underpowered. They couldn't get over the reefs. If the water was choppy or the waves were bad, they might flounder or sink or whatever, especially when it came to a heavier one that was designed to take a 30-ton tank and take it on, you know, take it in choppy water and put it on a beach. The Navy had its own design, but there was a New Orleans businessman named Andrew Jackson Higgins who had come up with a much better design. Uh, it was uh, cheaper, safer, it could handle heavy seas, and he could get nowhere with the Navy, totally shut out. Higgins was a bit of a, eh, he was a bit of a loudmouth. He was, he did not have manners. He did not fit in with the Navy society a little, and they didn't like him. But he was an amazing guy when it came to building small boats that would serve this purpose. Finally, he went to Senator Truman for help. He met with Truman mm. in his office and said, listen, this is ridiculous. I have a better design. It's way better. Like, they should be using this. So Truman came up with an idea, and he called up the Navy. He said, let's, let's do this. Let's run a test. Take one of this guy's boats and your boat and let's put a tank on them and see what happens. So this happened <laughs> This happened mm -hmm. down in early 1943 in the waters off uh, Norfolk, Virginia. They put a, a tank on these two boats and said, sail them several miles, land the tank on the beach and come back. Higgins' boat went all the way to the beach, deposited the tank, its tank on the beach, and then turned around and come back and circle around the Navy design, which was a danger of sinking at the time. Um, to help to be there to help out and so clearly here was a demonstration yes this design is much better the navy was finally forced to adopt the design of higgins these things became known as higgins boats all these soldiers and marines who went ashore called them higgins boats dwight eisenhower said this was one of the single things that helped the d-day landings uh, uh be a success so in other words who knows how many hundreds or thousands of men would have drowned or foundered mm -hmm. in the sea or whatever. So that's why I'm saying it's really hard to add up the number of lives saved, but certainly Truman's intervention made sure that these landing boats that helped make the D-Day landings and others a success 
got the got the best equipment. And I'm curious, why was the Navy so led to its current boats? Was this some Navy thing, or is it kind of like today? There was a senator in some other state, and that was his boat company. It's a, <laughs> he it, wanted those boats. It's a mix of all of this. The Navy then, as now, was very insular. Um, Mm-hmm. You know, they had their own boat design company. The The military, weirdly, is in in many areas like this, very reluctant to change, very reluctant to have mm-hmm. somebody come mm-hmm. in and say, you know what, you're doing it wrong. Um, I've ran across many instances where one of the toughest things of the Truman Committee and the Navy officers designed to deal with it was to go down the hall and say, hey, you know, the, there's some senator over there says you're doing a bad job, says you don't know what you're doing. Like that's that was not welcome. And time and time again. Yeah. Truman ran into this stonewalling from the military, as we still do, um, as we still do today. So Truman, he's out there in his committee having a huge impact. What impact does the committee have on Truman's career? You know, he starts to say that nobody's senator and we know he's going to end up yep. vice president. How, how does this get him there? Kenny, it's fascinating to watch him literally as I was going through these documents. I'm reading his letters, his files. It's kind of watching him learn on the job. Um, He's slowly getting used to national attention. He's slowly learning how to speak on the radio to give speeches. He's slowly um, learning how to be a leader of people. And he's finding himself becoming more and more sought out, more and more influential. He made a couple of mistakes. He came very close to criticizing Franklin Roosevelt a couple times that did not make, you know, the most powerful person in the world happy at the time. Uh, There was one period where Truman... uh, misspoke to a reporter that got into the paper and Roosevelt was pretty ticked off at him. And he learned from these. And and many, many times you saw him learning from these mistakes. But also you can see things that would serve him very, very well as president of the United States. He did not shy away from tough political decisions. Um, at a certain point where, it be, where Truman was kind of in the running for being vice president, a lot of people were saying, hey, back off on your criticisms. You know, don't blow your chances here. Truman sure, was like, sure. no, not doing it. Um, when there was a tough decision to made, when he felt like the country's interest, he Truman would go. Truman would go there, even if it meant criticizing the president of the United States. And you see some of that, uh, you know, served him well as president. You also see a tendency of Truman's that you probably read about too to shoot his mouth off and to um, <laughs> say yeah. some casual thing that he said to a reporter, getting into the papers and getting him in trouble. And 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 that too would be a a, a a trait of his that you would see kind of as president of the United States. But he was a very different man in 1944 after four years of sort of learning how to run a national investigation, of being a national figure, of being a sought-after figure, of speaking to reporters every day and watching what he said. He, this was an amazingly good training ground. And, you know, frankly, dealing with the military. Mm. So it sounds like safe to say, if not for the Truman Committee, he never would have been vice president. Yeah, it's, no doubt about it. Um, he he would have been so. And even as late as 1943, when everybody knew that Franklin Roosevelt would probably run for another term. And then those who mm-hmm. were really in the new knew that Franklin Roosevelt was a very sick man. So the Democratic leadership was knowing full well that. If Roosevelt got reelected, he would probably not survive that term. And so, therefore, whoever became vice president was very mm. likely to be the vet, next president of the United States. So, 
all this jockeying back and forth, even later, late on into 1944, Truman was way down at the bottom of the pack. But slowly, his national attention, Time magazine, put him on the cover of the thing. He had a good reputation, a solid reputation. He was a fairly clean reputation on race relations, which was becoming really important that time. A lot of the people mm -hmm. who would have been the front runners had fallen away because they had joined the Ku Klux Klan in the 20s or Oof. they were from a southern yeah. state yeah. or they had you know, squashed anti-lynching laws or whatever. And Truman had a fair, you know, he was not the civil rights advocate that he would be later, but he had a fairly decent right. record. The, the uh, black press and black leaders in Missouri had favored him over his opponent. So Truman mm. slowly was starting to look at the best of a bad lot somehow, or his, <laughs> uh, his star yeah. slowly rose up. He had no negative. He had none of the negatives that other people did. But it wasn't finally until the actual convention in August 1944 that Roosevelt got on the phone and told Truman flat out, you need to take this job. Truman didn't want it. Why does he say yes then? Yeah. Truman loved being a senator. He loved uh, the camaraderie. He loved learning. He loved serving the people of Missouri. He thought that was a fine job. The vice president then and now is in many ways a ceremonial job. Truman thought it was a waste of time. The way he put it is all you're doing is sitting around waiting for a funeral is the way Truman put it. And he, <laughs> he didn't want it. But even more so, yeah. his wife, Bess, really did not want him to be vice president. Bess did not like Washington. She did not like the social mm -hmm. life. She did not be in the spotlight. Mm -hmm. Whenever she could, she would head back to Missouri and hang out with her family. And Truman knew this. And so, you know, it was both him and his wife, who, who he loved very much, did not want him to take this job. Um, he, had, he, he had agreed to support the candidates of other guys. And literally, Roosevelt got on the phone and said, hey, this stubborn Missouri mule needs to take this job. Truman hung up the phone and he kind of was like, why didn't he tell me that before? You know, like so it, it Roosevelt made it clear to him that to take the job was essential to uh, the Democratic Party's chances in the middle of a war and that Truman needed to do it. So he took it. So Truman takes the job. We know where he goes from then. He leaves the committee. What yep. is the legacy of the Truman Committee? Yep. Um, I would say a couple of things about that. Yeah, the Truman Committee com continued for several years, but everybody kind of knew that once Truman left, the kind of wind went out of the sails a little bit. It would issue reports. It would have other leaders, but it never would command. You know, the words of the Truman Committee were no longer front page news around the country. Um, but... The legacy, I think, is really interesting. Yes, it saved billions of dollars, and yes, it saved a lot of lives, but I think there's a couple of other things that are worth saying. Truman had, in many ways, kind of invented a new way of doing these congressional investigations. He and his chief counsel, Hugh Fulton, they came up with several principles early on. They were not going to sort of pander to the press and play favorites and leak stories and get into this whole game. They would play fair and square with the facts. But Hugh Fulton went to endless lengths to fact check the reports and make sure that the facts even to the point and this was a brand new thing in washington they would share them with the military or with the contractors or the manufacturer's name and let them review it they would send back if they had some factual mistakes to make and then the other thing that truman did was go to immense less lengths to make these reports bipartisan while Truman was chairman, this is this is one of the most amazing things I learned in this story. While Truman, Truman was chairman of the committee, they issued 32 reports. Every single one of them was unanimous and bipartisan. When you think about the Washington that we know today, this is incredible, um, this level of cooperation. And so the end result of all this was 
regular Americans and the media and the people in the government came to trust this committee. In other words, there were Kenny dozens of investigations going on covering some of the same stuff during the World War II. House investigated the Senate Military Affairs Committee, the House this or the Senate that. Only one of them became front page news and vaulted its leader into the White House. And so, like, what was it? It was this new way of doing this, of kind of being honest and open with the um, facts. It was sort of this bipartisan effort that Truman did. To He worked really hard, and this is where his leadership came in. He would go over the reports line by line with the other senators on the committee, usually over drinks in his office, um, <laughs> bourbon-fueled. Yeah, that helped. That helped. Yeah. <laughs> But if there was an objection, Truman would kick it back to the staff. They would work it over. Mm. All this work to the point where in the 80 years since, every time there's a big government spending program, every time there's a big military uh, budget increase, if we look back a year or two ago to this $1.5 trillion government bailout bill, I I was watching the Colbert show one night. It's House Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi is the guest on the Colbert show talking about this $1.5 trillion bill. First question Stephen Colbert says is, tell me about the Truman Committee. Um, In other words, every time we have, and Pelosi talked about this and how Truman Mm -hmm. had uh, keeping an eye on the taxpayers' money. Every time we have a big government program, somebody comes out and says, hey, we need a Truman Committee to look into this. So I really think that's the biggest legacy is creating this mode in which the democracy can kind of keep an eye on itself. It's a great legacy. And my, my last question is when you look at the work Truman put in to create this committee, his to lead the committee, to execute it, what lessons in leadership can we learn from Truman in the way he led this committee? I think, I yes, I think there are several key ones and they're fascinating to, to me. As I said, um, a willingness to share that leadership. If Truman was an egotist who wanted every, every memo to go out under his name or every headline, it wouldn't have been nearly successful. He was willing to share with the other senators. He would say, hey, oh, we're going to investigate aluminum. Senator, you take this one on. He would let that senator mm. present the speech to the, to the Senate. Uh, he would let that senator do the press interviews. Like it was a sharing and a, and a power sharing. Truman worked really hard. This notion of consensus building, which you fear sometimes is lost in our Washington of today. Truman worked really hard. He would get these senators together and say, okay, Somebody would have a disagreement. Sometimes he would say to the two who disagreed, you two go off, figure it out and bring back your solution and we'll put it in the report. And so Truman learned a whole lot about how government worked and how to build consensus and how to be a leader from this. And I think it really I think it really held him uh, served him well as president. The other one, as I said, Truman learned from this committee and took into the White House a willingness to make tough decisions whether they were politically popular or not. I think the firing of General MacArthur while he was president is a really good example. Yeah, yeah. Everybody in America was angry at him. It thought They thought it was going to cost him the, his re-election to the presidency. Uh, from Truman's point of view, it was a thing that had to be done, and, it, and he did it regardless of whether it was politically popular or not. So I think a lot of these traits that, that he kind of trained on on the Truman Committee really benefited him as president. If you've enjoyed this interview with Steve and want to learn more about the Truman Committee, please check out his new book, The Watchdog, How the Truman Committee Battled Corruption and Helped Win World War II. You can find it at stevedrummondbooks.com. And also, when you're done with this episode, 
go tune into NPR. That's probably what I'm listening to. <laughs> and do. If you're listening to it and I'm listening to it at the same time, that's kind of cool. Thank you for your time, Steve. Kenny, it's been a great pleasure. Really fun talking with you. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Abridged Presidential Histories. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe, tell your friends and family about the show, and leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. You can also follow the show on Twitter at APH Podcast, or you can find me on threads, Kenny.Ryan27. Let's give that a spin. If you'd like to support the show, you can look it up on Patreon or go directly to www.patreon.com slash abridgepresidentialhistories. This helps me buy books and pay to host the show. And thank you so much to everyone who's contributed so far. The music in today's podcast is a public domain recording of the United States Army Old Guard Fife and Drum Corps. In our next episode, I will interview Dennis Giangreco, the author of a new book re-examining what Truman knew of the Manhattan Project, when he knew it, and why he dropped the bomb. Yeah, it's a deep dive on Truman and the bomb, next time on Abridged Presidential Histories. <laughs>